Would you help us, Lord Jesus, to preach? Lord God, I, I don't understand really what I'm saying. Um, you are what I'm saying. And so guard our hearts and fill us with yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. It's the sense of touch. What? <laughs> Any real city, you walk, you know? You brush past people, people bump into you. In LA, nobody touches you. We're always behind this metal and glass. I think we miss that touch so much that we crash into each other just so we can feel something. You guys okay? I think he hit his head. Do you know what movie that is? Crash, that's right. Uh, one best picture of 2005. Uh, the rest of the movie reveals the truth of that opening statement. Don Cheadle says, we're always behind this metal and glass I think we miss that touch so much that we crash into each other just so we can feel something. You know, that's kind of true. We work and we work and we work to construct our own realities where we are a king and high priest and then we crash into each other and feel something. Perhaps God even arranges the crashes. Last week at the end of this service, Jenna Bullis approached me down this middle aisle with tears running down her cheeks. She said, I was just in a crash, Sixth Avenue. I was on my way to church, Peter, and I, I had just prayed, Lord, would your will be done this day? And just then, just then, this dog ran out into Sixth Avenue and I watched as the dog was slaughtered by oncoming cars and then I swerved and other cars swerved and I crashed into them and we, we pulled over and, and then she said, and then Peter, something amazing happened. Some people got out of their cars. And before long, they were hugging each other and weeping with each other. She said, I wept with one woman who had just lost her husband only a few days before. She was barely hanging on. We stood there on the side of 6th Avenue holding each other, weeping. We wept and we wept. And, and, and yet I wondered, God, I just prayed that your will would be done. Why the crash? And then I came to the worship service and you preached on John 11, pointing out that we connect at the place of tears, the place where the body is broken. You know, church is like a God-ordained crash. And house church most definitely is. In John 11, Jesus goes to a funeral for his friend Lazarus. Hundreds of individual lives united in tears over a body broken, it's a crash. Death is a crash, and we all, we all die. Well, in John 11, it's clear that God arranged this crash. Jesus hears of Lazarus' sickness, if you remember, and waits two days in order to go to Lazarus' side. When he arrives, he weeps with the mourners, and then he reveals the glory of God, raising Lazarus, from the dead, but the glory of God isn't simply power to reanimate 
dead tissue. The glory of God is sacrificial love. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified, body broken and blood shed. You know, if we taste the substance of his glory, perhaps we won't run from his glory when it's fully revealed in all of its power. If we weep with Jesus now, perhaps we can laugh with him forever. And so, perhaps, the Lord has consigned us to weeping in this world, that he might come weep with us and we with him, that we might trust his heart and so see his glory and enjoy him forever. That was last week's sermon, summarized for you, right there. Well, John 11, one through 44 is a crash. It's a crash filled with feeling. Remember, Martha meets Jesus just emotionally distraught. And then Mary comes out and meets Jesus, falling at Jesus' feet, weeping, while a crowd of people all around them uh, are, are weeping. And then Jesus is moved, deeply moved within himself with indignation, and then Jesus starts weeping. And then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus hops out in his grave clothes, and Jesus says to those weepy, emotionally disturbed, uh, on-the-edge people, unbind him, release him, as their tears turn into peals of laughter and their mourning turns into dancing. I mean, it is an incredibly emotional scene. And so if you were here last week, you might have thought to yourself, dang, what a crybaby sermon. I better be careful or I don't want to be, you know, uh, manipulated by my emotions because I'm into faith and faith is about facts, not about feelings. You know, in the last century, the 20th century, feelings got a lot of bad press. What I'm about to show you are our pictures, all pictures from my Psych 101 textbook at the University of Colorado, the chapter on emotions. This is a picture of love. My textbook defined love as an emotion, feeling, or affect. And then in an effort to understand our emotions, we studied rhesus monkeys deprived of love. And rhesus monkeys uh, manipulated by emotions of stress and angry bulls controlled by electrodes implanted in their brains, and the limbic system of our brain. In other words, we reduced feelings to facts. The chapter ended with a section on love of God. Chemicals, hormones, behavioral modifications. But you know, maybe that's not really what feelings are just a little bit of what they're made of. Now you may say, well, whatever feelings are, I want the facts. 20th century, you know, was all about facts. In college, I was involved a bit in Campus Crusade for Christ. And at the end of their evangelism tract, you know, the four spiritual laws, they had this uh, famous picture, perhaps you remember it. It was the Fact, faith, feeling train. And underneath it said this, the train will run with or without the caboose, the feelings. However, it would be useless to attempt to pull the train by the caboose, <laughs> yeah, by the feelings. 
And the picture does make a, a pretty good point, though, if you think about it. And then that is that God and his word, that's the ultimate fact. It's a fact no matter how you feel. Feelings can come and go, like, you know, the wind or, or a spirit. We're not sure exactly what they are. We're not sure really if they are, and we cannot control them. Feelings. Feelings. <laughs> Nothing more than feelings. Trying to forget my feelings of love. Teardrops. Rolling down on my face Trying to forget my Feelings of love Feelings All my life all feelings I wish I'd never met you You'll never come again Feelings Oh, feelings Oh, feel it Again in my That's enough of that. Okay, let's just stop that. Let's just stop that. Okay? Because, yeah. Be, because is it not obvious that feelings are just plain silly? Right? Feelings are silly. And, and no doubt, simply following your feelings can lead to just a world of trouble. But what about not following your feelings? Think about the 20th century. Stalin, Hitler. I mean, how would you go about systematically exterminating six million Jews? For that matter, how would you go about crucifying the Messiah? I mean, you'd have to like try and forget your feelings of love. Well, John 11 is comprised of two scenes. And I think John really wants us to see these two scenes in juxtaposition. The first is the tomb and a boatload of unbridled emotion. And the second is the Sanhedrin. That's the religious political council that ruled the affairs of the Jewish nation under the empirical dominion of Rome. It was comprised of 70 elders, uh, Pharisees, uh, uh, scribes, and priests, um, 70, 70 men under the direction of the high priest, 
71 men preoccupied with doing what was expedient, whatever was expedient in order to maintain control, their control, control. You know, when we apologize for feelings, we usually say, I'm sorry, I, I lost control. Justin started playing the piano and I just lost control. John eleven forty four, And he who had died, Lazarus, came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and, and let him go, unbind him. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council, the Sanhedrin, and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing, nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Trying to forget their feelings of love. Did you catch what just happened? The religious authorities had all the facts and the feelings did not follow. Actually, it's almost like they used the facts in order to crucify the feelings, the feelings of love. You know, Mary and Martha, the women at the tomb, really had no facts, just a bunch of wild emotions. And they saw the glory of God. But the council, they had all the facts. I mean, think about it. These, these were the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. They had scripture, in specific, the law. That is the knowledge of good and evil. It's like they knew all about the good, but didn't know the good. They had scripture, and they had signs, verse 47. They saw the signs, and yet it's like they refused to read the signs. You can see a sign and not read it. Uh, they had scripture, they had signs and prophecy. I mean, God spoke to them through Caiaphas, and they even believed it was God. Do you catch that? It may be the greatest prophecy ever uttered in the history of the world. As high priests speaking in the temple, using sacrificial language, Caiaphas says one man should die, who pair, on behalf of the people, that the whole nation might not perish. Caiaphas spoke the ultimate fact, and he spoke it presiding over the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate demonstration of love, and yet he himself was utterly immersed in evil and did not understand what any of it meant. 
If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, if I have prophetic powers and all knowledge, understanding all mysteries, if I have all faith, give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I'm nothing. And I gain nothing. The Pharisees used facts about love to crucify love. They took the feelings of love and cut them up into manageable facts. They used the knowledge, the knowledge of the good to nail the good to a tree. You know, 200 years ago, theologians in our country used scripture in order to buy and sell people like furniture. 65 years ago, some theologians use scripture in order to justify the extermination of the Jews. Today, some theologians use scripture in order to justify crimes against the Palestinians. We all use scripture in order to judge others and not forgive. In other words, we use scripture to oppose the word, the living word. And this is an amazing thing, but, but, but people can speak profoundly accurate prophetic words. I've found this and, and not have a clue as to what they mean. Jesus is what they mean. Jesus is the meaning of all facts. He's the uh, meaning of all facts and the ultimate fact. In other words, Jesus is the revelation of God and God is love, writes John. God is love. So is love a feeling? If it is, God is a feeling. He's the engine that pulls every train. Well, the problem with talking this way is that the Bible doesn't talk this way. Okay, you'd be hard-pressed to find the word fact or emotion in any English Bible. When we use the word fact, we usually are referring to a truth that we comprehend. I don't know that the Bible recognizes any of those, actually. <laughs> But when we use the word fact, we're usually referring to a truth that we comprehend. But in the Bible, the truth comprehends us. And any truth that we do comprehend usually isn't worth knowing, worth comprehending. It's a fact without any meaning. And so in the 20th century, what have we done? We have built a universe of facts. And none of them have any meaning. Well, we comprehend facts but feelings comprehend us. Emotions move us. Affections affect us. We don't comprehend them so much as they comprehend, move, and affect us. Even my Psych 101 textbook says this, um, that, that psychologist says, well, we really don't know what they are, <laughs> emotions. They just know a little bit of what they're made of. So we can examine our feelings and isolate some facts that influence our feelings, and yet feelings remain more facts than we can comprehend. And so check this out. Feelings are not necessarily unreasonable. Actually, I think they're hyper-reasonable. They're more reason 
than we can comprehend. And so we recognize emotions and feelings like we recognize music. You know, music is profoundly reasonable. It's just more reason than we can comprehend. And so it comprehends us. It moves us. And we dance. So anyway, we all long for feelings. For when we feel them, they animate us and we feel alive. And yet we're all terrified of feelings. For when we feel them, we realize that we are surrendering control. And we're vulnerable. To love at all is to be vulnerable, writes Lewis. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So hell must be when and where we finally forget the feelings of love. Hell is a hard heart, a heart of stone that can no longer feel, a dead heart. I don't think Satan's ultimate goal is to get you to feel anger or wrath or hatred or lust or jealousy or sorrow, grief. I think the ultimate goal of our adversary is to get you to feel Nothing. And all those other feelings are, are just tools that he uses uh, on the way of getting you to that place. I, I could be wrong, but I suspect that all feelings are the feelings of love. Or distorted feelings of love. Or shadows and deep longings for the feelings of love. So, so anyway, as, as long as you feel I think you are most deeply longing for love. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that you should do whatever you feel. Please, please don't think that. And it certainly doesn't mean that all feelings are only, only good. But it does mean that you shouldn't ignore feelings, stuff feelings, or simply repress feelings, hiding in your room, safe within your room, where you touch no one and no one touches you. No, don't do that but confess your feelings. I mean, surrender your feelings to the light and let Jesus redeem your feelings. Feel them with Jesus and he will show you what they mean. You ever thought about this? Jesus was angry at sin. Jesus felt wrath, the wrath of God. 
You, you know, Jesus hated, I think he hated. He hated what was evil. And he was jealous. You know that? He was jealous for you, the house of God. You can check this out in the Greek in Luke chapter 22, but I think, I think it reveals that Jesus even lusted. He said this at the Last Supper. He said, in lust I have lusted to eat this dinner with you. He longs for communion with you. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He knew absolutely delirious joy. He even felt fear in a garden. Remember? And even felt abandoned and forsaken by God upon a cross. Jesus is the manifestation of love, and God is love. Jesus is God in a body of flesh. That's chemicals, hormones, nerve endings. Jesus is quite literally the feelings of love. Jesus is love in flesh. And whatever he feels must be a feeling of love. Quite literally, the feelings of love. Don't forget him. Several years ago, a friend of mine, part of our church, was uh, worshiping with us during the service, and she told me about this. She said, Peter, we were singing some song about love and God or something, and um, at the time, she was going through a very painful divorce, and in her pain, she prayed this little prayer. She prayed, God, I'm willing to feel unloved. And she told me, she said, I heard the Lord speak quite passionately. He said to me, don't you dare. Don't you dare. Don't be willing to feel unloved. To feel no love is to feel nothing. And that, my friends, is the temptation of hell. Feelings can be terrifying. But feel them with Jesus, and he'll show you what they mean, what anger, fear, sorrow, and joy, what they really mean and what they're for. You know, they all mean love. And God is preparing within you a capacity for love. God is love. Jesus is the way to love. And you are to be filled with love. And get this, love will affect you with feelings far more powerful than you can even begin to imagine right now. Feelings. But, but, but is love a feeling? Well, some say, well, love is a decision. Well, if it's a decision, it's God's decision and a very passionate sort of decision. God is love. Okay, but is love a feeling? Well, I can't really answer that, for our concepts uh, don't define God, don't define love. God defines all of our concepts. But you see, if love is a feeling, the ultimate fact is a feeling, for God is love. God is love, wrote John. And he who loves is born of God and knows God. God is love. I wish we had time to get philosophical about this and talk about absolute beingness and predicate nominatives and sentence structure, but I think the phrase God is love also means love is God. Not just any love, that, I mean, not, not your definition of love, but all real love 
is God. God is love and all real love is God. So you see, according to scripture, we are created by love. We are surrounded by love. We are immersed in love and yet we are afraid to feel love. <laughs> We're like fish in the sea, afraid to get wet. And so what do we do? We create a universe of little facts, like a submarine that we control in order to protect our hearts from the outrageous feelings of love. Perhaps that universe, that submarine that we create needs to crash. You know, death is a crash. And perhaps every crash is an invitation to feel the feelings of love. That is to feel the heart of God. During the Depression, during the 1930s, there was a man by the name of John Griffith. You may know his, his story, lots of people do. He was the controller of a, 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 a bridge, a, a bridge that crossed the Mississippi. And it was his job to uh, pull a lever down and lower the bridge whenever a train was coming, passenger train, freight train. And it was his job to uh, pull the lever up and raise the bridge whenever a ship needed to pass under the, that railroad bridge. Well, in the summer of 1937, John Griffith took his only son, Greg, an eight-year-old boy, took him to work with him. First time, only son. Greg was just thrilled to be there. They had a wonderful morning together. Um, he raised the bridge for some boats that had to pass underneath and, and he realized that he had a little time to spend with Greg and so he took Greg, it was about noon, took him up onto the observation tower above, above the bridge and there they had lunch and there they told stories and there John Griffith lost track of the time until suddenly he heard a, a train whistle and it wasn't that far away. He glanced at his watch, it was 107, it was the Memphis Express. He glanced down and he realized that the train bridge was still up. And so he, he, he left his son Greg there on the observation tower and he ran down uh, to the control tower. He was getting ready to lower the bridge, lower the level, and, he, and, he, and he, glanced at the, he glanced at the structure to see if there were any boats going underneath and he noticed that his son Greg had slipped and fallen from the observation tower down onto the gears that lowered the bridge. And all of a sudden, John Griffith realized that he had a decision to make. He could pull the lever down, lower the bridge, and kill his only son. Or he could leave the bridge up and watch as 400 people on the Memphis Express careened in the Mississippi River. And so John Griffith, 1937, made his decision. Pulled the lever down and sacrificed his only son. 400 people on the Memphis Express went flying across the bridge. John Griffith stood on the top of that control tower and he yelled after the train, I just sacrificed my only son. Do you care? Do you feel? Now you see, I, I don't think that our human minds can comprehend why exactly God would allow something like that to happen. I don't know that we can comprehend why exactly God would allow this to happen. There's all kinds of theories of the atonement. I don't know that we can comprehend, but I think God is asking us, but can you feel it? The feelings of love. Can you feel it? 
And now let me ask you a question. Does God feel what John Griffith felt that day? Or would it be more accurate to say John Griffith, for a moment, felt just a little of what God feels? The feelings of love. See, I do know that John Griffith will get his son back. He'll get his son back and all things with him, all things including the very heart of God. In other words, he will know the heart of God. Like Abraham and Isaac. Perhaps John Griffith will know God better than any theologian, any preacher, any high priest that ever lived. Perhaps every time we feel something, there is an invitation to feel it with God. Perhaps every crash in this world is an invitation to surrender your dark little universe of control and feel the wild, ecstatic, unbounded, free feelings of God. The feelings of love. Well, anyway, there's some, there's some truth in that fact-faith feeling train. But sometimes God and his mercy turns the train around. So there was a crash. Mary and Martha stood there weeping with Jesus. And now they laugh with Jesus and dance with Jesus forevermore. There were plenty of tears at that tomb. But there were none at the Sanhedrin. You know, working on this sermon this week, I realized that all my life I have worked tremendously hard to do whatever it takes to avoid that tomb <laughs> and to gain a permanent seat on the Sanhedrin. <laughs> well, thank God for crashes. At the tomb, they die and live. At the Sanhedrin, oh, they're in control. They live, but they're dead. At the tomb, they unbind people. At the Sanhedrin, oh, they're all about binding people up. At the tomb, they surrender to love. At the Sanhedrin, they plot to nail him to a tree. At the tomb, they are obedient at the Sanhedrin, they are expedient. Very different. The tomb is a crash. And the Sanhedrin is safe. Safe as hell. At the tomb, they see the glory of God. At the Sanhedrin, they encase themselves in darkness. They build a fortress of little manageable facts in order to protect themselves from the wild feelings of love. For to feel love, you see, is to lose control. It is to lose your life and then find it. Love is ecstasy, ecstasis in the Greek. Uh, losing yourself in glory. Love is the sacrifice of self in a communion with another. And so these old Jews, they hid 
themselves. They hid themselves in hell. And God, in his infinite mercy, arranged a crash. The crash. And the gates of hell could not prevail against it. From that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves about Jesus as they stood in the temple. Well, what do you think? Will he come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him at the Passover. For it was expedient that one lamb should die for the nation. See, Israelite worship consisted of thousands of complicated sacrifice and the chief priest resided over them all. He had all the facts, but he didn't know what any of them meant. Isn't that wild? For a thousand years, God had Israel feel the sacrifices. See the fire, smell the blood, taste the meat, communion. For a thousand years, he had them feel the feelings of love. And on a Friday, he revealed what it all meant. It was the ultimate fact. It was the revelation of love. Jesus Christ and him crucified for you. And I think you're supposed to feel it. Through Zechariah chapter 12, the Lord says, When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, a fountain shall be opened. The feelings of love fountain to cleanse from sin through tears. In the next chapter, John 12, five days before Passover and his crucifixion, Jesus cries out, now is the judgment. Let me paraphrase. Now is the crash. And when I be lifted up, and he was speaking of his death, when I be lifted up, I will draw, I will romance all people unto myself. It's like Caiaphas had prophesied. His death would gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. So anyway, last week, Jenna told me about the crash on 6th Avenue and the dog that had died, the broken body and the freeway and how all those people in their separate worlds all at once were drawn together, weeping, hugging, loving and laughing, connected where the body was broken. Amazing. Well, look. <laughs> We're like all traveling down a highway, cocooned in our own little worlds of control. And something's coming the opposite direction. It's the Passover the lamb that was slain, Jesus. A train bound for glory 
the very feelings of God. And so he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken, given to you. Take and eat, feel it, taste it. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. And so we invite you, if, if you want him to come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup and partake of the sacrifice and present yourself as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. In other words, crash into this. Feel with Jesus and then dance with Jesus forevermore. Let's worship. Don't leave. Feel it and worship. Amen. Scripture says God is spirit. It's a better word than emotion. A spirit that affects all of our emotions. And so let me just ask you, and you can do this on your own. Close your eyes for, for just a minute. Let me just ask you, how do you feel? No, you, don't lie to yourself, okay? Because you don't get anywhere by lying. You feel angry? Well, then I just want you to pray this little prayer in your heart. Say, Jesus, would you come be angry with me? Because you know what? Jesus knows anger. He was angry. And he'll show you what anger is for. <laughs> I mean, I think he'll show you, you know what? You, you, the people you're angry at, you, you really don't need to be angry at them. They're not your enemy. You have an enemy. Let me help you be angry. Angry in the right way. Maybe you feel afraid. You, you know, Jesus, I, I, think, I think he felt fear in that, that garden long ago, but even more, I, I think he'd come to you and he'd say, well, you know, really, there's only one to fear, and that's my father. Hey, let me show you my father. Fear him. Look at him. He's perfect love, and then perfect love casts out all fear. Maybe you feel sorrow. Say, Jesus, can I feel sorrow with you? And, and I think he'll say, yeah, come sit with me in a garden. Oh, and weep. Weep for this broken world. Die with me. And then we'll rise from the dead. Maybe you feel joy. I mean, if you feel joy, give that to him. Feel it with him too. And I think he'll say something like this to you. You know that sunset? You know that bird singing? You know the beauty of this day? You, see, you feel that joy? Oh, that's just a taste. It's, let me tell you, it's just a taste. Because if you were to feel all my joy, all the joy of my kingdom and all the joy of my father, oh, you'd just freak out. You would absolutely freak out. But I'm preparing you. I'm preparing you for joy. I'm preparing you to be filled with me, to be filled with love. You see, you are part of a body that's been broken. 
was broken long ago in a garden, but even that was according to God's plan. But now Jesus is bringing that body together. And you know, when you're broken, you guard that wound. You don't want anybody to touch it, and yet you can surrender that wound to Jesus. You can surrender that feeling to Jesus because he is the great surgeon, and he brings the body together. And when a body is brought together, it feels joy. It feels life. And that life is love. Many persons, one substance. God is three persons, one substance. He is love, and you are destined for love. So entrust him with yourself. Entrust him with your heart. Entrust him with your feelings. Believe the gospel and live. In Jesus' name, amen.